From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. The number of military veterans choosing North Carolina as their post-service home is on the rise. Estimates of the state's veteran population range from a low of around 638,000 to a high of 900,000. Whatever the real number happens to be, the needs of this community are growing. Today we're going to meet four people who have served in one branch of the military. Our aim and goal today is twofold, to acknowledge and honor the service of these veterans, and to narrow the growing chasm between the military and civilian populations. We'll explore also why that even matters. Joining me now, retired Lieutenant General Joseph Kinzer. In 1959, he enlisted in the Army. He was just 19 years old. General Kinzer's military career began in Fort Benning, Georgia, took him to Fort Myer, Virginia, and Europe. In 1964, he became a commissioned officer. He's fulfilled five tours of duty, starting with the Dominican Republic, two tours in Vietnam, then Panama, and ultimately as commanding general of the United States and United Nations forces in Haiti. But this retired three-star general says the highlight of his career was working with soldiers at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. General Kinzer, welcome to Coastline. Thank you very much, Rachel. It's such a privilege to have you with us. You joined the military at 19 years old when Vietnam was simmering. Why? Why did you want to join? I knew, uh, excuse me, I knew that the draft was going to get me anyway, so I thought I'd be master of my own destiny, and I would enlist, and I did. Did you have other family members who'd been part of the military? Exactly, yeah. I was going to say that. I had three uncles from the same family in World War II, and they were my role models, albeit I was a young fellow then. (laughs) So your first tour took you to the Dominican Republic in 1965 with the 82nd Airborne Division. Correct. During two different tours in Vietnam, you were an advisor to the 7th Airborne Battalion, Army of the Republic of Vietnam, operations officer and assistant secretary to the general staff of the 24th U.S. Corps in Da Nang, Vietnam. Talk to us about that first tour in Vietnam. What was happening at that point, and what were you actually doing? Well, as you said, I, I was an advisor with the uh, Arvin Airborne Division. Um, we had a three-man team, myself. I was a young captain at the time. Uh, a, a lieutenant and uh, a sergeant. And our mission was to support the Vietnamese leadership in terms of coordinating support of both combat, combat support and combat service support. And uh, basically, uh, I was a fire support coordinator for the battalion commander. Unfortunately, he was wounded in the first operation we went on. And uh, he had to be evacuated, so we got a new another battalion commander. But by and large, I was 
on paper a coach, if you will. But when you peeled the onion back and looked at uh, what I was really doing, this guy, the, the, the battalion commander, 16 years in combat in Vietnam, and the VC and the NVA were alive and well, and uh, the, uh, I guess the, uh, the bottom line was we uh, lived with them in the field mm-hmm. and uh, provided all the support we could. We had direct link to the U.S. forces, and I think that, was, that made a difference in terms of their ability to do things. When I asked you about whether you were afraid of losing your life in some of these conflicts, you always said to me that you weren't, and it wasn't something you really thought about. Why? Uh, I don't know. I just... I was sent there to do a job, and I did it, did it to the best of my ability. And uh, I, I tried to uh, maintain focus on what it was we, we were doing, supporting the Vietnamese. Basically, what I was trying to do was get them in the leadership role, if you will. Let them take the fight to the enemy and to support them in any way I could. Haiti's first democratically elected president in its history was ousted in a coup in 1991. Bloodshed continued in that country for years. The U.N. sent in peacekeeping troops several different times. In 1996, you were named commander of the United States and United Nations forces in Haiti. Correct. What was your mission? Uh, Basically, it was kind of the same as it was in Vietnam. Again, synchronizing support for the uh, Haitian leadership, albeit they had their own uh, they had their own uh, leadership in, in place. And again, we're trying to uh, prop them up, let them take the lead. One of my Hallmarks, if you will, was every time we had an operation going, we wanted a Haitian in the lead. Show the Haitian flag under Haitian leadership. And it worked. And you were told, go there, go down there and build a team. Yeah, the chief of staff of the Army, General Sullivan, said, Joe, go down to Haiti and build a team. And there was no playbook for that at the time. I told the chief, I said, Chief, I didn't take that course in the War College. <laughs> But we, we we figured it out as we kind of figured it out as we went along, and uh, again it worked. One of the things that you've told me you've observed this growing divide between the military and the civilian population, and it it concerns you. First of all, why do you think that that gap is happening? Well, we did away with the draft. In 73, went to an all-volunteer force. And I think that was the latent incipient stages, if you will, of a change in direction. Albeit, initially, the uh, 
the results of the transition to all-volunteer were very good. We were able to recruit a higher-caliber soldier, sailor, airman, marine, whatever, and uh, most of those that we recruited wanted to be part of the force. And that made a difference. That made a difference, absolutely. It made a difference in terms of their willingness to serve, their willingness to accept hardship. And uh, all you really needed to do was to uh, take care of them. And that is something that you really loved about your military career, the soldiers. Right. Taking care of them and coaching them and guiding them. That was your favorite part. Why is that? What is it about the soldiers? I just felt a a great sense of job satisfaction, if you will, to uh, take these young soldiers whom I've never met before and mold and cast them in a... a, uh, situation, if you will. Are there any that you think of now that are really special to you? You don't have to name them, but but someone who came in maybe having a rougher time and transformed into a very fine soldier? Yeah, uh, several. Um, I guess but one, one, one comes to mind a young soldier enlisted in the Army came to me. I was a battalion commander at the time at Fort Campbell, Fort Campbell Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And he's married and got three kids, and he didn't join the Army. And I'm saying, Lord, have mercy. What, why are you here? Sir, I want to serve. And that was it, basically. He had made up his mind that he wanted to be part of the organization. And uh, again, he he did a good job for me. And service is the heart of it for you. That's what you've talked right. about a lot with me. You've said that the key to a good life, it's the four Bs. What are the four Bs? Four Bs are be on time and dependable, be sharp, be busy, and be courteous. And I had a young soldier, I told him about it one day. He said, sir, you're missing another B. He says, if you're off four of those, you'll be good to go. So I added a fifth B. Be good to go. (laughs) Be good to go. And you've also said to me that if you have the answer to three questions at the beginning of the day, You'll, right. you'll have a successful day. What are those questions? The first one is, what's my mission? You know, who, what, when, where, why, and all that. Mm-hmm. What's the plan to accomplish the mission? And the third one is, who's in charge? Who's the stucky, who's the go-to guy or gal to get the job done? And I thought if you, if you knew those three things, you couldn't fail. Lieutenant General Joseph Kinzer, thank you so much for being with us today. Our pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for your service. God bless. You're listening to Coastline after this short break. We'll meet Stephen Short. Stay with us. 
I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. In honor of Veterans Day, we're meeting four people who served in the United States military. Stephen Short enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1982 and found himself working as a wireman on telephones and switchboards. He went on to serve as a tow gunner, then became a warrant officer in 1998. He was tasked with creating the program that would train Marines at 29 Palms to deal with chemical warfare. In 2007, he did a tour of duty in Iraq. He retired from the Marine Corps as a chief warrant officer for and is now working for Marine Corps Installations East as an operations readiness officer. Stephen Short, welcome to Coastline. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to have you with us. Now, MCI East, Marine Corps Installations East, is part of the federal government, but a different entity from the actual Marine Corps? No, we're part of the Marine Corps because there's a, there's a Marine general that, that oversees Marine Corps installations east, and it's all the Marine Corps installations on the east coast from Camp Lejeune, Cherry Point, all the way down to Beaufort, I mean, to uh, Blount Island, Florida. And so MCI East owns all that, all the bases, the property? Right, all the Marine Corps bases, yes. Right. Now, your work as a readiness officer, you work primarily at Camp Lejeune in a super secret vault where you have to strip everything off before you walk in there now, in terms of recording device, potential recording devices. Can you tell us what you can tell us about your work? Yeah, so what I do is readiness for the for Marine Corps base and for MCI East, and it's just readiness uh, for equipment and personnel in, in case of uh, deployments, um, military working dogs, EOD teams, uh, deployments within the continental United States. Um, and then I, I also do the readiness for the base. So um, that's about all I can <laughs> talk, talk about for that piece. It's, uh, that's fair. Now, y- you naturally, maybe this is why you're good at being in sort of secret operations, because you don't naturally talk about yourself. And and we've talked a little bit about this gap between the military and civilian population that you notice seems to be growing. Yes, I think uh, the younger generation, as you know, recruiting's harder for all the services. Um, in my opinion, in the Marine Corps, it's been hard to recruit for the Marine Corps for many years because it's a selected amount of people that we recruit every year. Um, and with that, I think the younger generation is not understanding the military as we did when I was a young, when I was a young person coming into the military. Um, and I think that gap, the gap is just growing due to the fact that I think some of the civilians don't want to ask the questions. And the military members get it in their mind that they don't like civilians or they may not understand civilians. And, 
you know, it's it just breaks it by one person asking the other person a question. You know, it's in Jacksonville, North Carolina, of course, there's a the Marine Corps base there, so a lot of you don't get asked a lot of questions. But when you go to other places like Wilmington, you may get asked a question. You know, it's, it just takes you answering that question and finding out so that they have a better understanding of the military and what we do. Which makes sense. So it takes some effort on both sides. Why is it that you don't like to talk about what you've done in the military? So, you know, after 25-plus years in the military, the, the Marine Corps had, uh, tasked me to do things. I mean, and I did those things. That's, that was my job. Um, I prefer to speak about my Marines and, and how we serve together and uh, how the Marines understand each other um, better than my. I, I don't think I'm important enough to talk about myself. I just don't like doing it. it it's just always been hard for me to do. I, I prefer to talk about what my Marines did or do. And there does seem to be that that appears to be a recurring theme among service members. People have said to me they're called service members for a reason because they're looking for something bigger than themselves. Exactly. I mean, this country asks its service members to do a lot of things. Um, You know, one of the Marine Corps things is, you know, to be ready, to be the most ready when the country is least ready. So, I mean, that's the mentality of Marines is we train to make sure that if we're called to do something, we are trained to do it and we can trust that Marine to our left or our right. It doesn't matter the gender, the sexuality, if it's a male, female, it doesn't matter. We're all Marines and we all train together to make sure that we can defend this country when we're called upon to do so. When you did your 2007 tour of duty in Iraq, your job was you were doing briefings. Yes, I, I, I sat right behind a lieutenant colonel, and we built a brief every day for the general for uh, to, so he could brief his higher headquarters on. So uh, that was my primary, primary duty after, for the last seven months. The first five months, I was a, I was a chemical biological officer. Um, and I was that also for the second part, but, you know, I had a excellent master sergeant that would take care of that while I was helping the lieutenant colonel build these briefs. And it required you to look at pictures that were pretty horrific that you don't like to talk about. Yeah, that I mean, everybody that goes to combat, it, it, it touches them in a certain way. Um, and in the, 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 it's hard to talk about some of those things. Um, yeah, there's, there's some, there's some things that you see, whether you're one of those guys out there on the ground or girls out there on the ground fighting or doing convoy operations or sitting in the inside building briefs and looking at the pictures and things that come across. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to say the least. And I, it's, it's, I don't, I don't really talk about it a lot. Yeah. Now, as creating this training program for chemical warfare for Marines in 29 Palms, retired Corporal Matthew Strangman is someone who, well, he connected me with you and said that this is a guy he looks up to for his leadership, um, has tremendous respect for you, and this is what he had to say. 
you always knew what you were going to get from him. Hypothetically, if you're working with somebody and you didn't know what you were going to get from one day to the next, it's, it kind of makes the, the environment difficult. And despite being in the military, you know, that was difficult enough, and he didn't make it any more difficult. The consistency is deeply important to you. Sure. That, that and, the, uh, and the trust and the, the reliability is extremely important um, in circumstances that you may, may confront in the military. I'd just like to say it was, a, it was an honor, it was a pleasure. There's a lot in life that I, that I took from my experience in the military and, and being in the military with Steve. So I, I'd like to say Semper Fi and thank you. I was retired Marine Corporal Matthew Strangman talking <laughs> about his time with you and how much he respects you. That it, You just said a few minutes ago that you need to know that your fellow Marine on the right side of you or the left side of you you need to know that they're going to be there no matter what. Like what he is saying about you is profound. Right. It's the ultimate trust. Yeah, and that's uh, that's what we, what's ingrained in us, if I can put it that way. I mean, we uh, we train together. You know, I I I know a lot about my Marines, and they know a lot about me and my family. Um, and you just, that trust is built. It's not just, you know, hey, you're going to trust me and you're going to be next to me and you're going to do this. It all comes down to they have to trust you and what and your decisions, especially as a leader. They have to trust and be con- and know that you're confident in making this decision. Or, they're, you know, you could tell them to charge a hill all day, right? And they're not going to feel confident unless you show confidence in that. And you have to show confidence by making the correct decision on telling them how you're going to do that. So, you did you leave the military at one point? Yeah, when I uh, after my first enlistment um, in August of '86, I, I I left I left the Marine Corps. Um, you know, against uh, my wife told me you should just think about it before you make this decision and I didn't I just I said no I'm I'm leaving I got discouraged about something and I said I'm done you know and less than 30 days later I was like I really want to be back in the Marine Corps less than 30 days later yes less than 30 days and it took uh my brother-in-law uh is a retired master gunner sergeant from the Marine Corps and he was a recruiter at the time and he's the one that worked diligently to get me back into the Marine Corps because back in 86, 87, it was hard to come back in because recruiting was so well and they'd rather pay a new guy than an old guy. Can you describe, Uh, can you put into words what it was that you missed? Oh, yes. I mean, the people, the people you, uh, no matter, uh, the people are the strongest part of any team, as you know. Um, Especially in the Marine Corps, you'll meet some people, and uh, no matter what, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, you run into that person, and what do you do? You shake their hand, you give them a big hug, and you say, it's great to see you again, no matter who they are. Um, it's because you build that, that bond between brothers and sisters in the Marine Corps, right? And we don't call them brothers and sisters, we call them all Marines because that's what they are. If there's one thing that you could leave the civilian community with about Marines, uh, just to help uh, foster understanding, what would that be? You know, Marines have a um, distinction for being um, 
big in co- combat, being uh, being a mean people. We're not. We're all the same, just like you and me. Uh, so, you know, talk to us. Talk to a Marine. You may find one that's not going to answer your question or it's going to be, get away from me. But for that one, you're going to find two or three that's willing to sit down and talk to you about their experience in the military, in the Marine Corps. Thank you so much, Stephen Short, for being with us today. Thank you. It was a true pleasure to be here. And thank you for your service. Thank you. You're listening to Coastline. We'll be right back after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Bill Bruce enlisted in the United States Navy in 1957, in part, he says, to get out from behind the mule on his family's North Carolina farm just outside of Lumberton. He served as an aviation electrician working on electrical systems on aircraft. He was on the flight crew of a four-engine transport aircraft carrying mail, troops, and cargo over the Mediterranean theater from Spain all the way to Pakistan. He eventually came back to Norfolk, Virginia, then Brunswick, Maine, where he tracked British, Italian, and Russian submarines. Bill Bruce, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to have you with us. Now, tell us, why the Navy? Well, I had two older brothers uh, that were in the Navy also. I have a late uh, deceased brother-in-law that was in the Navy, uh, first cousin, second cousin. We're a Navy family. Yeah. So you told me that the closest you ever came to combat was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yes. You joined in 1957. The The height of that crisis was 1962. And according to the U.S. Office of the Historian, that was a dangerous confrontation between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War the moment the two superpowers came the closest to nuclear conflict. What was your involvement in that? Well, at that time, Rachel, I had been, I was stationed at the Naval Air Station in Brunswick, Maine, uh, aboard a patrol bomber, 11-man crew patrol bomber, uh, essentially during flights, which were about 12-hour durations. Uh, 12-hour flights. 12-hour flights, yes. And I operated uh, a piece of electronics equipment called ECM, Electronics Countermeasure, and also radar and some other submarine detection that's still top secret. So So you're not going to tell me what that is. (laughs) But the electronic countermeasure, how is that different from radar? What what did that tell you? Uh, Electronic countermeasure picked up transmissions, the frequency of transmission, so that we could triangulate and and home in on whatever was transmitting. Uh, It wasn't quite as effective as radar because the subject or the enemy or the target had to be transmitting for us to pick up the frequency. 
Can yeah. you describe what it was like to realize that you had tracked a submarine, you were getting information? How did, can you sort of talk us through what it was like inside the airplane? Well, uh, as I said, it was a it was an 11-man crew. Uh, it was pretty cramped at the time. Some of the new modern aircraft for submarine detection, a whole lot roomier. But this one was pretty cramped at the time. Uh, there was, a, of course, a, the pilot and co-pilot and the flight engineer up front. Then there was a flight deck with four operators, which is where I was located. Then across the wing spar behind where I was located was a radio man. And in the very rear of the airplane was the ordnance man who handled all the smoke flares, uh, depth charges, things of that nature. And so what kinds of things could you learn about a submarine from an airplane in the sky? Well, we could actually, with some of the top-secret stuff we had, we could tell how many blades were on the propeller, how many revolutions the propeller was rotating, what direction the submarine was headed, and if there were auxiliary, like a, a ventilation fan or something like that, we could tell what the RPM, the revolution per minute of that motor or that fan, we could also tell what the revolution per minute of the propeller was to kind of judge the speed of the, air, of the submarine. Now, you have been uh, pretty open with me about your time in the Navy, and except for the things that might be classified and things we, we don't talk about for national security. But you as you said, had family members who were in the military, and you had yes. two uncles, one in particular who was in World War II and survived the Battle of the Bulge. Yes. Can you talk about what it was like when he came back and what you observed? You were you were still living with your grandparents at that point. Yes. At that time, I was living with Grandma and Grandpa. My mother had some extended sickness, so I was living with Grandma and Grandpa. And, of course, my uncle was not married at the time once he came back from the military. So uh, he stayed with Grandma and Grandpa like I did for a period of time until he got his life together. Um uh, he probably had some what we now call PTS, uh, and I agree with you. We dropped the D because it's not a disorder; it's a it's a natural reaction from uh, as as I said before, war is hell. Yeah. Uh, I used to hear him at night gritting his teeth, and. Uh, he would rub his fingers a lot because during the Battle of the Bulge, he got frostbite on his fingers and his toes. Thankfully, he did not lose any digits, but he did get frostbite on fingers and toes. Uh, yeah, so but, PTSD, the acronym for post-traumatic stress disorder, and as, as we'll probably talk about in the next segment, there is someone who's, who's said to me, I wish we could just talk about PTS, post-traumatic stress, because the D disorder implies there's something wrong or it's not a natural human reaction to 
uh, experience extreme stress when you're going through horrible things. As as a as a boy, what did you think about that at the time? I mean, did that frighten you from entering the the military yourself? Uh, it didn't frighten me from entering the military, but it did at the time because I was kind of quite young then. Uh, when he would grit his teeth or grind his teeth in his sleep at night, that kind of concerned me. I mean, it it was not natural, and I just wondered what was going on with him, what he was experiencing in his mind. Did you ever talk with him about what he went through or any of your family members who went through traumatic things? Because no. I think this is something civilians wonder about a lot. I did not because both of my uncles were fairly closed-mouthed about what they experienced. Uh, they, they just did not discuss it. And I think that, that they were probably going through, in fact, I know they were going some things, some things in their mind that uh, they had to deal with, but they dealt with it and moved on in life, and both of them lived a normal life afterwards. What would you say to civilians who would love some guidance on how to talk to veterans? Because we, we hear also today that sometimes veterans, well, instead of, why don't you tell me how you feel when someone says, thank you for your service? Do you ever wish you could have an, a longer conversation about your <laughs> service and, and have them kind of appreciate what you did? Yes, I do. Uh when when someone says thank you for your service, it it's, it evokes in me a feeling of respect and dedication. It it makes me proud. I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but it makes me proud of what I did in the military and how I served our country. Uh, it's uh, it, it just makes you feel proud. It, when you think back to your own service, what are you the most proud of? I think probably, Rachel, uh, it was a little bit traumatic, but during the time I was in North Africa flying across the Mediterranean, and there was an incident in Beirut, Lebanon, where the Marine barracks was, was uh, attacked or exploded. The Navy had quite a few ships offshore standing by just in case. And an elderly sailor on one of the ships unfortunately had a heart attack. And we went to Beirut to, to retrieve his body to what's called angel flight. That was, that was a little bit traumatic. But it's something that, you know, I realize death was natural for him. He did not die from enemy action. He died of a heart attack aboard one of the ships. But still, it was traumatic to go retrieve his body and bring it back. What was it like for you when you finally left the military and re-entered civilian life? Uh, by the time I got out, of course, I think you and I discussed uh, earlier that I had uh, family by that time. I had children, and it, it became very difficult to to satisfy my military obligation and my family obligation. And that's one of the credits we need to give to career servicemen, the, the, the dedication they have and the, the things they give up 
to serve our country. What would you have had to give up if you had stayed in the military? What was it about your family? Just that? time with my family because, especially being in the Navy, uh, could I could possibly have deployed back to the Mediterranean or to the Pacific Theater for uh, about 18 months or 12 months, and, and it just would be time away from my family, watch, watching my kids grow up and spending time with them. Yeah. Well, thank you, Bill Bruce, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank and, you. And thank you for your service. Appreciate it. You're listening to Coastline. After this short break, we'll meet Bill Kaczynski, retired Marine and current director of military affairs at UNCW. We'll learn about some of the issues that face our veterans as their presence in the Cape Fear region grows. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Today, we're meeting four military veterans. Our goal is twofold, to honor their service to the United States in time for Veterans Day and to perhaps bridge the widening gap between the military and civilian communities just a little bit. Joining me now, Bill Kaczynski. He joined the Marine Corps just as the 1991 Gulf War was getting underway. He served as an intelligence analyst where he monitored military and geopolitical situations for more than 50 countries. He served as a liaison to foreign military organizations before leaving the Marines in 1996 to join the University of North Carolina Wilmington in the Science and Math Education Center, which was part of a statewide collaborative. Since 2016, he served as Director of Military Affairs at the university. Bill Kaczynski, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you with us. You wanted to become an intelligence analyst. Did you originally want that to be in the military or just somehow, some way? Well, I had a kind of a fascination with that type of work. Um, obviously, you know, you watch movies when you're in college and you're thinking of, hey, you know, what's the realistic opportunities? I was at a small school in northwestern Wisconsin, so CIA, DIA, and other agencies didn't really come recruiting at our institution very much. So if I was really serious about pursuing that type of uh, career path, um, I had to look at other means. And so I was, as a college student, was working in a medical clinic where one of the directors was a former naval intelligence officer, and he kind of helped pave the way for me to uh, explore that opportunity. And six months later, I was in the Marine Corps and doing just that. Now, one of your missions you told me about was a humanitarian mission in Cuba, you spent seven months there with Haitian and Cuban refugees. Why? What was happening? So that was back in 1994, 95. Obviously, um, 
a lot of strife and things have been for many years, both in Cuba and in Haiti, Haiti, excuse me. And, you know, folks were doing anything and everything they could to leave both the island of Cuba and Haiti. And so, you know, here we're having small boats out in open water that are designed for maybe six or eight people and there'd be 25 people on there. And so we had a lot of interdiction opportunities and all told we had about 50,000 Haitian and Cuban migrants that were being held on Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And so obviously the military personnel were the ones that oversaw Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and Now, this wasn't a prison at this point. No, no. This was a refugee camp. Refugee camps, although um, they did have a form of a prison that was in place there because, first and foremost, we had no clue as to who these individuals were that we're picking up from, you know, sea interdictions and bringing to the base because now we have to do some background investigations. And some were folks that were released from their prisons and then... As time moved on, um, you had to develop a kind of a parole process. So how are we going to get these folks to the United States after we kind of figure out who they are, where they're from, and what their intent is? So as that process unfolded, most families or single individuals, females, were looked at first. The last folks to look at the parole process were single males. So single males started figuring out, well, maybe if I commit a crime serious enough while I'm in these encampments, either they're going to parole me to a U.S. prison, which means, well, I get three hots and a cot, so to speak, and the opportunities to be in the United States. And that's exactly what a lot of them did. And you said at that point Castro had sort of thrown open the doors to Cuban prisons. Sure. Thinking you guys would deal with it. Exactly. What better way? And and. Uh, so not everybody was obviously paroled to the United States after, you know, long investigations or, like I said, some committing, you know, serious crimes. We did have repatriation for uh, flights back to Havana and, and so forth where, sorry, these folks aren't. So that was all State Department <laughs> pretty much run, but yes. And you left the Marines in 1996. Yes. And went to work at UNCW in the science and math education, part of the Watson School, which was part of this statewide collaborative to help K through 12 teachers. So it was teach. a it was part of a statewide network. There were 11 other centers at UNC system schools. And the design behind that was how do we increase, one, students going into a math and science-based careers, but also our proficiency levels within the state, we wanted to increase that for our K-12 students. And so we operated as an entity that worked with local teachers, both elementary, middle, and high school, and ran a lot of workshops, professional development trainings. I would take equipment that the university had and loan out to the schools after teachers were trained on it. So it really was a robust program that really did make a huge impact in all areas of the state for students being interested in in math and science and looking at pursuing those careers. And then in 2016, you became director of military affairs. What does, why do you need a director of military affairs uh, on a university campus? Well, our previous chancellor, uh, Chancellor Sartorelli, uh, started looking at, won the map, and then started trying to dig a little bit deeper. Here we are situated sort of close to the two largest military installations in the world, Camp Lejeune at Fort Bragg at the time, now Fort Liberty. 
And he wanted to know, well, what does that mean for our student population here? How are we serving these folks? And we really didn't have a great mechanism in place. We'd always had students that came from Fort Bragg or now Fort Liberty, Camp Lejeune, Seymour Johnson, and so forth. But we really didn't have a clear understanding how many students we had or how many are military affiliated. You know, are there sons and daughters or their husbands or wives, you know, coming to school here? And how many are there now? So in, in, in 2016, um, we had 1,545 that we were aware of. Um, there are still some that, you know, slip through that, you know, once they depart the military, they don't select that on an application. Those they intelligence like, specialists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they just decide, hey, I, I've, I've done my time in the military and I just want to be, you know, John C. Smith going to school at the university and start my next life. So 20, uh, 2021, we had ballooned up to about 2,400 students. Um, but now a lot of other universities are really looking at this as a amazing population with which to kind of court and bring into their university system. So each year in North Carolina, there are about 20,000 military members that depart service. So now this becomes, wow, we would love to keep these folks here in North Carolina. And if they're not going straight into the you know employment sector, maybe we should bring them into the university or community college sector and, and get them you know advanced degrees or get them their first degree and help them along. You said to me that the way the military population, not just on campus, but across the state is growing in North Carolina, if it stays on this trajectory by 2030, North Carolina will have the most, the highest number of military veterans at, yes, of any is, state in the union. That is correct. Um, a couple of things that help that particular uh, metric. And a few years ago, our state legislature approved not taxing the retirement of our military, which was always a hard pill to swallow for a lot of folks that spent a lot of years here in North Carolina. And now having that as a, a great benefit for those, a lot of folks are staying once they depart the military here in North Carolina or returning to North Carolina from another state. You also have, like I said, two of the largest military installations. You have Naval Resources, Coast Guard, um, Air Force, Army, Navy, or Marine Corps. And so being the third most populous state for military personnel. And it just seems that you know, this is a great place to retire and why not stay here with what I'm familiar with. And so there's lots of positive for the state as a result of that. But these folks also need a lot of services. There is, at least when we spoke, it seemed that, that there's not only a lack of understanding about this population on the civilian part, but there are special services that folks coming out of the military really need. Yes, I mean, you just think about the last 20 years, what have we been involved in? 20 years of military conflict. And with that goes a lot of resources that are required. And, you know, the VA just can't get, you know, to everybody with all types of services and so forth. And so it's incumbent upon local communities to kind of pick up the slack at times. And, you know, as somebody that serves, you know, the last thing you generally ask for is assistance because you generally think that, hey, I, I was able to navigate the space in the military. Ah, how hard could it be when I get out of the military? And so, you know, coming to a new community, you know, it's starting all over and, you know, where's my tribe? Where's my resources? I knew where I was going every day or what I was doing, and now it's completely different. You said to me when we first spoke, you wish that we could drop the D from PTSD, post-traumatic stress, because yes. it's not a disorder. Why do you say that? Uh, 
it's it's something that it's not something that you're born with. You know, I, I think I mentioned to you previously that in you know these are just folks having a normal reaction to an abnormal situation, and you know it, it's hard to process. And every everyone that served and may have had some troubling experiences, whatever they may have been, everyone processes it differently. And I think I related a, a story to you of, you know, w- what if you had children that are in a car accident and a three-year-old's the only one that survives it and the rest of their family members are no longer, how do they process the rest of their life? That's a traumatic experience. Right. But it was nothing they were born with. Right. So, And you're actually seeing more suicides, despite the fact that I found a, a report to suggest that the suicide rate is ticking down among veterans. You say there's a huge need. So there's always a need. Um, our active duty population, believe it or not, I believe the for the Marine Corps just had an uptick for the first time in, in several years. But yeah, there's there's definitely a need. And we will post resources on our website about that. You can also Call or text 988 if you are in crisis. And that's this edition of Coastline. Bill Kaczynski, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Appreciate it. And thank you for your service. Thank you. Thanks also to Joseph Kinzer, Stephen Short, Bill Bruce, Matt Strangman, the American Legion, Post 543, Honor Flight of the Cape Fear, and Canines for Service. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find this episode and resources at whqr.org or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline.